My name is Stefan Timmermans and I am from the Netherlands. I work as a horticultural advisor and the main crops I do are strawberries, uh, vegetables outdoors, mainly asparagus, leafy vegetables and um, the cabbage family. How long have you been doing this? I've been doing this since 1988. You're so. a young man. <laughs> <laughs> so, and um, interesting to tell is that uh, after uh, graduating from the college, that's the point where we started to learn things. So they gave us a very good uh, basis, can I say that? Yeah. And from that, from then on, just starting to do advisory work is when we really started to learn things and observe how nature works. That's the main thing there. And we still, what I find is that it, that keeps going. It's a process that never stops. So it just keeps going and going and going. Especially if you want to improve and help farmers to get to a higher level, then it's a challenge to just keep going and going and find new challenges to keep that uh, level uh, up. That's what I find. What's your favorite part of this? Of my job, you mean? Yes. And you don't laugh at me. The favorite part of my job is finishing my uh, visits and rushing home to my own garden at night and start <laughs> doing the work myself. Mm -hmm. And the most things I've learned is the, the things that I've done myself. So I sow my crops and I plant them and I feed them and I, I try new products eh, to, or new things and then see what that brings me. So you're and a biological organic consultant? I'm not certified, but I uh, try and uh, as much as possible in the biodynamic agriculture. Uh, oh. So I'm still on the on a learning curve, and the new thing for me is biodynamic preparations. So that's why we have the seminar in Scotland, which is a great help. And I, this winter, I want to prepare everything I can for next year that my new land will be ready for. Where are the biodynamic preparations in the Netherlands from? And that's uh, a lady. She's a member of the biodynamic uh, organization and uh, she makes them and that's where I go and I order the various preparations. Mm -hmm. So for me to do it myself for at this moment would be too time consuming. Where does she uh, find the horns? Um, I think, I haven't asked her, but it's, it's a fairly big group of biodynamic farms all through the Netherlands and that she gets them from the various farms. Oh, that's good. That's what I, uh, I haven't yeah. asked, but I think that's the thing. Yeah. So um, do, you, do you also suggest biodynamic for your, for your farming group? Um, for, for up to now, uh, not as much for the preparations. A few farmers are interested, so we will together we will start working on this. Uh, what we do do is uh, use Maria Thun's uh, calendar, calendar, and that's a great help. So the timing of the feeding, the timing of watering, but also time of planting and harvest, and that's that's I think is interesting to work with, and you can see the re results easily. So uh, uptake of minerals, we do leaf samples, and you see very often you see a better uptake 
and for example, uh, harvesting products and uh, the shelf life. Eh? So that you know if, if I harvest on the right time, then they will keep better in winter without putting in lots of energy or whatever. If you do it right, then the product will be okay also for a longer period of time. So, yeah. So your commercial growers are using chemicals still? Mm. I still visit uh, many commercial conventional farms and my aim is it doesn't matter that much that they're conventional. What I'm trying to do is implement as many biological or biodynamic mm -hmm. uh, uh, details as possible. So uh, what I like in Holland is that many conventional growers are open to some new ideas, even mm -hmm. if it's biological or even biodynamic. And they will call me if they want to spray something and they will ask, is it the right time to do this or this? Oh. And that's what I really enjoy. So right now you're using the calendars for main biodynamic Yes, campuses. yes, yes. Yeah. So for now we're in Scotland, uh, over here, and the farm we have the seminar at with the Hugh. They are very open for this. If we do the visit, the first thing we do is print out the calendar from this month. Then we go to the field mm -hmm. and we look at the soil, we look at the roots, we do some plant sap testing to find out where the levels of the nutrients are and then we decide what do we want to do. So we make, a, let's say, a small program of what we're going to do with the feeding and watering and then we check that with the calendar. So the timing, we know what we're going to do and then we decide, oh, tomorrow it will be a root day so then we, it's better to bring this to the roots tomorrow and the leaf application is better to wait until next week, Monday, for example. That's what we do. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Yes. Because, I mean, I know biodynamic consultants don't often use the calendar as the yeah. main. So that's our starting point. And now we want to take this to a next level and start using the biodynamic preparations, which exciting. for me is a very new field. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Well, yeah. he's given you some suggestions last year, I think. Yes, yes. And from, from me personally, it's interesting. Last week I bought a, a new field, a two-acre field, and it's, uh, the quality is poor, so to speak. It's low and it's wet, and it's, I dug a hole. It's anaerobic, there's not much biology. People suggest I put in drains for the excess yeah. water, and I'm not going to do it. Oh. I remember the first book of Hugh Lovell, uh, a biodynamic farm, where he bought a very poor piece of land and he made the best. I know that land <laughs> well. <laughs> and that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm going to read that book again and see how he did it, and that's what I'm going oh, to do. I remember that backfield, Ginger. So today we, we uh, heard from Hugh that it's good to do Ginger. And even in the Netherlands you can do ginger, so I've made my decision next year I'm going to grow ginger. <laughs> but it'll be a challenge because I'm doing my work on the farm and now uh, I can start from on a, on a poor field and this is good because now I can see what I advise to farms. Can I do that myself? And will I be successful in making that piece of land into good, healthy agricultural soil. 
Wow, so I've got some ideas, so I think it'll be good. You know, it's very sandy soil, or yes. So a lot in, of salt in the area where I live. Um, it's interesting to tell uh, the last ice age, ten thousand years ago, the North Sea, which is our main sea, was dry, and the prevailing winds uh, brought the sand from the North Sea to where we live. So there are no stones, nothing, it's just pure sand. And some fields you can have uh, um, a topsoil of more than a meter. Because really? the plants started to grow there and they started to build humus. And that can grow all the way down to wow. uh, more than a meter. So wow, a very a valuable piece of land. Very, very nice uh, uh, soil. It is not that rich. But our findings is, if you get the biology going, then it's, it's really a nice soil to work with. It's easy soil to work with. It's not difficult at all. So, not heavy anything. No, it's not heavy. heavy and if it yeah. rains, you know, it's only half an hour, an hour, and the water is gone. And if you do it right, yeah. Oh, I can see your excitement about this. <laughs> yes. So. You're like having a new child. <laughs> yes. And then Hugh has taught us so many things in the field so that he taught us what to look for and what to observe so to give you an example what healthy roots should look like and then and if you dig a hole you smell the soil you look at the roots you look at the leaves the formation of the leaves the internodes the color and then you put a leaf, you, you take a leaf and you, you uh, rub it in between your fingers and if there's not enough silica it will tear apart and if it's strong and it has good silica levels it will stay as it is and those things are very handy to find out what the crop is doing and if your soil is going into the right direction. So. <laughs> and I try to memorize all that when I'm doing my work and then I can teach the grower. So when you go to a grower, how much time do you spend with them? Mm. And the smaller growers roughly one hour and the bigger farms up to four or five hours. Yeah. So on a, on a day And how often? Uh, the, some farmers I visit on a weekly basis. Oh really? Yes, that's what they really want me to do. And other farms every fortnight. So, really? Yeah, and that starts mid-March up to end of October. Yeah. Wow. So it's fairly intense. That's yeah. very intense. Yeah, yeah. So in winter I have lots of time. <laughs> so I can follow the seasonal rhythms, which is good for me, because in winter my energy level is a bit lower. But that really spikes in summer, so it's long days, a lot of sunshine, so I have lots of energy. And then we have the long days. <laughs> so when you go to a farm, say, every week, for yeah. four hours, yes. Now what do you do? Do you do visual soil assessment? Or? Yes, I, I'm not... Um, uh, some advisors are really in love with their laptop, and they like data, so they sit down and they look at samples and data. And that's something I can't do very well. I want to see the crop. So I do all the fields with a spade and we'll go in, dig up the soil and look at the roots and see how things are going. And then 
I find I can advise them much better what to do. If we do look at data or uh, samples, I do that at, at the end of the visit. So I've seen the field, we know what the crop looks like, we know the conditions, the weather conditions and everything, and then the data have more value because then you can reflect it to what you've seen. Do you sell products yourself? No, no, no. You refer no. them? Yes, so we've got some uh, various companies who supply mm -hmm. good products and then we can refer to them. It's very interesting because Hugh has always yeah. said, I don't want to sell product. No, Because no. I no. think it makes you a pure kind yes. of consultant. Yes, it's more object objective. Yeah. So now I can really tell them what I think is best to use and that there is no financial... Exactly. Because uh, a lot of consultants go yeah. there and their whole testing, everything yeah. is from the point of view of yeah. how much product can I sell. Yeah, no, I don't like that. Uh, yeah, no. no you're and uh, uh, what uh, Hugh is teaching us is my ideal, so that in future we can have soils that are more self-sustaining. Sustaining. Yeah. So the, the soil can do much more itself without us having to do a lot of input. Yeah. 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 And he gets there eventually. I mean, it's, it, I, I know our, our friend uh, Kim Green, the apple girl, a couple of years ago, he said to me, Shabri, I've done this now eight years. I keep putting in the natural, natural minerals in the minutes yeah. in his, in yeah. his yeah. apple orchards and cherry. Well, Shabri, interesting, sorry to interrupt you. No, not at all. <laughs> interesting to tell is uh, one of our bigger lessons is uh, go for the total test. So if you only do the water-soluble, which we've been doing for the last 15 years, you're missing a, yeah. a valuable piece of information because you do not know what's behind that. And you might go wrong on advising too much of something which might already be there. Well, it's interesting because Kim, I said, look, Kim, keep going. And the next year he did. And he yeah. thanked me. He said, my yes. God, he said, it's the best cherry crop ever. <laughs> the best apple crop ever. Yes. You know, so, more that they could pick and delicious. He was teaching us if, if, the, if the minerals are bad, yeah. um, what we need to do to get that uh, available for your crop. Yeah. So that's, well, that's the that total testing. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> and in this way, we try to keep Moving forward, there. So, how do you like the sap testing that you're doing? Because it's a unique. You mean the laboratory? Yeah. Uh, I know you Personally, work. I'm not involved. It's two of my colleagues who do that. And um, um, as I say, Shabri, I like it if I can combine it with my field visit. Yeah. So, some of my colleagues, they uh, have. The, different uh, ways of working with this so they can they can have data coming in from a specific crop and they can they can yeah. tell you whether it's good or not so good or something need to change without going into the field. Yeah but and farmers that's, sorry that's the only thing I cannot do. Farmers so. are human beings and you're working with human beings yes. working with the crop so what we found at the a uh, farm in Scotland is uh, sometimes we have the data and, uh, and it does not always reflect what the crop is um, looks like or what the crop is doing 
the moment that we're there. So I'm going to explain this. Um, it's it's it can be a help, but don't make something uh, uh, holy out of this. Do you know what I'm trying yeah. to say? Don't forget to go into the field and look at the crop because sometimes they will tell you a different story. You know what the yes. the crop loves the most? Farmers' uh, footsteps. footsteps. <laughs> yes. That's right. Footsteps so, of the farmer. Then, uh, shall we, we have our own uh, simple sap testing kit. Yeah. That is uh, the bricks, the C, pH, potassium and nitrate nitrogen. So, and then when we're in the field uh, and we have doubts sometimes, or we, we're not quite sure what's going on, we do in-field testing oh. and that very often is a very good help. So we're walking around, the, the berries are there, we know the plant is really taking up many nutrients because it's hungry for it. And uh, we, uh, we test the nitrate and we test the potassium on the young leaves and the old leaves and then we can we know what the plant is doing and uh, um, what's the equipment you use to do that it's from the japanese company horiba horiba and they uh, they sell small handheld plant set meters and then you've got a set of uh, we call that vice grips how do you call that in in your land I don't know. Flyers? So you can flyers, yeah, that's the word. Sorry for this. <laughs> and then you can uh, squeeze out sap. Yep. And you only need two or three drops per meter, and then that gives a perfect reading oh, of what the crop Here is we doing get you at one that of these moment. Yeah. You know this device, you? Yes, you probably know them. This what's it from, called? From Horiba. The plant sap meters, the potassium nitrate, nitrogen, yeah, and the EC. <laughs> Um, shall we? Most interesting, if the plant has an excess of something, it has a tendency to store it in the older leaves. Yeah, that makes sense. So, but going into production, very often it will start using those reserves. Oh, really? From the and older then leaves? The best example I can give is with potassium. Uh, as soon as the plant starts to flower, the potassium uptake. Uh, it rises. Right, yeah. In the beginning, it's really looking for uh, boron, silica, calcium, magnesium, and you know, you know the yeah. sequence. And then potassium is not not doing. Uh, not I have to be careful, but it's not doing very much. It can stay at a consistent level for a long time. Then the first flowers, when they That's have right. been pollinated. And you follow that with your sap wants to go towards the fruit. You'd be surprised because then it, it acts like a, like, a, like a sink. So all the potassium reserves are going to the flowers and the first young fruit. Yeah. And that is the moment you need to be very careful because that's the moment where you can um, go too low in potassium. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting because that's like John Priestley with the poke mm -hmm. when the nitrate when he needed potassium yeah. hit yeah then he noticed yeah oh the plants by the pokeberries were getting yeah. potassium yeah and um, and you know observing that yes nature put a plant to provide the potassium yes so uh, as soon that this is our own rule but as soon as the older leaves 
low below the potassium level of the young leaves and you're using up all the reserves. And we try to keep the older leaves 500 ppm higher in potassium than the younger leaves. And then you know even when it's coming into production you'll be okay. But if the older leaves are... Um, These are on strawberries, raspberries... Uh, mainly strawberries, that's how... Strawberries, uh, yeah. And that we find works very well. So if we manage to keep that difference, then the crop will thrive. If you, if that turns around the other way, so the young leaves go higher in potassium and the older leaves are losing too much potassium, your crop will suffer. You will pick smaller fruit, low bricks, and the plant cannot sustain itself. So, and then you will lose quality and production. <laughs> and you want to stop now? No, for a moment. I need to go to the toilet. Oh. Is, is that recording all this? It's all good. It's all good. Okay, so now Did we're... you skip the last bit, Chabri? No, it's well, all good. It's all good. Okay. Just keep going. Where were we? Um, what, so I can only tell from personal experience, okay? What we found is that um, um, it's interesting what the plant is doing. So, going into the production, uh, the focus goes a bit to potassium, but then we make some mistakes. If you overdo potassium, you will lose vigor as well. So, a good lesson for us was not to forget boron, silica and calcium, especially <laughs> those. So, the thing we did this year was we did focus on the potassium, and our favorite is potassium sulfate, which for strawberries works very well. We hate potassium nitrate, which we never use at this stage. But in the meantime, we were spoon feeding a product that's called Dialyte, which is sil silica plus boron, and uh, calcium. We use two different calcium forms. One is called biocalcium, which is without the nitrates. And I personally, I'm very fond of uh, milk. And yeah. I don't know if it brings in a lot of calcium, but the plants seem to love it. So we do that at night, and then we apply 25 liters to the hectare. 25 liters of milk? Of milk, yeah. Soured milk, any milk? No, fresh raw milk. Uh, fresh raw milk. Yeah. Personally, I would love to have it from cows uh, with horns, because I think they are uh, higher in energy. But if we can't get that, then raw milk is okay. Do they, they spray them to the soil or to the no, leaves? No, no. Uh, and we run it through the uh, drip tape, eh? Yep. The drip irrigation. And at home, I use it as a foliar as well. So, uh, sometimes you walk to your crop and they're a bit dull and dark, and they're suffering. And my findings are, if you do a foliar application with milk, the next morning they, they very often look healthier and the leaves go uh, shiny again. Yeah. And you can tell they really like it. So. Yeah. so I'm trying to explain is, we need the potassium for the fruit, but you mustn't forget the plant. And by spoon feeding Dialife and the calcium products, we maintain vigor and the plant is able to bring the next fruit as well.
See, that's so interesting because we all know that he's such an advocate for silica. Yes. <laughs> but you're going to find the more you go into biodynamic preparations that it's actually the first agriculture that pays attention to silica. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously, that, I mean, it's a polarity a silica, yeah. calcium, yeah. digestion, yeah. and fruiting and ripening. And Even we did not fully understand all these processes. The fields showed us we were going the right. That's right. Many times I tell people when I used to walk by Hughes Farm, which is my neighbor, and I'd say, oh, your soil's looking so beautiful. And he always had the same answer. And the atmosphere. Oh. And yeah. the atmosphere. And that's the silica remedy. Mm -hmm. That's the 501. It's the whole fruit ripening, the atmospheric yeah, yeah, yeah. processes. Yeah. The cosmic processes yeah. that is what biodynamics takes into account. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so that's our new yep. goal for the future to look at that as well. Yeah, we haven't done that very much. Yeah, but so far. as you see results, yeah, yeah, yeah. especially with fruiting. The funny thing is, Shabri, is once you get into this, yeah, it becomes very interesting, yes. and then. It's it sort of doesn't let you go anymore. So you get into this, and it's interesting. You see the results, and then from you can go yep. one step at a time. Yeah, so we've had a lot of problems in Australia in that it's like two different schools of of biodynamics, and this one school says no five hundred one at all, no silica yeah. because of the warmth and the sunshine in Australia. Yeah. And it's an imbalance. Yeah. But they're meant to go together, the 500 and the 501. Yeah. Very much meant yeah, to go yeah, together. Yeah. And so finally, Q, sitting on the standards, setting the standards for biodynamics in yeah. Australia, finally told these farmers, look, apply them as one remedy. Yeah. Which is just, people get very narrow, but if the only way you can apply them is together yeah. in the wintertime, you do it. Yeah. Just get that balance. Yeah. So now it's in the standards in Australia yeah. that you have to use yeah. 501 at least once a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, in Holland you'll want to because it's not that much sun. No, no. That would, see, it helps yeah. that. We'll see. I'm, yeah, you're going to have just, fun. What I find, Chabri, is um, when I gain experience myself and I see results, then it's easier for me to talk to my farmer. Yes. If I haven't done it myself and I do yeah. not know from experience what it can do, yep. I cannot convince them to yep. go for it. So, well, so you're growing grain. Excuse me? I said you're growing grain. Yeah, spelt. Yeah. Spelt, yeah, so that's, yeah. Yeah. that's very exciting because yes. yeah. it has that whole silica gesture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you started studying plant gestures? Uh, uh, a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Ever since Hugh came over to Holland, and yep. he taught us um, the various plants and how they uh, how they act, uh, what, what yep. their uh, uh, habit of growing is. That that was a great help in observing uh, yep. what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So, and um, that goes for weeds as well. Very much so. So even if you don't have any samples, soil samples or any data from a new field, go in, dig a hole, see what the soil's like. And look at the weeds that are growing. Yeah, there. observe and them. They are very good help. 
I mean, it's, if you yeah. see a purple flower and an endemic weed, yeah. you can almost know it's a copper deficiency. Yes, and if you have the weeds with uh, a lot of edges on the leaves, that's, that's right. That's, that's, sulfur. that's right. And Good uh, work. I'm <laughs> <laughs> ah, getting it. <laughs> I try to put it on my in my head so that um, every time I'm some somewhere that you you can uh, you can use that straight away. That's right. So even if you don't know the weed, yep. Uh, uh, and then you can still find out. And you know, a lot of, like you said, teach a class on fermenting your weeds. And you don't even have to put molasses or sugar. You yeah. could just make an infusion yeah, with yeah, it. Yeah. And um, but I know farmers that have made huge, huge fields um, redundant of weeds just by making fermentation yeah. from yeah. that weed yeah. and spraying it out yeah. on there. Well, diluted, mind you. Yeah. Diluted. I mean, like, we have this Patterson's Curse in Australia. Mm -hmm. It is purple and it's shrubby. It's shrubby. It's hard. And it poisoned cows. Yeah. And it's horrible. And it's so classic a copper plant because it's got all those purple flowers. Mm -hmm. And so our friend Kim Green, the cherry grower, mm -hmm. he, he just made an infusion. And he might have put some molasses so it actually fermented. Diluted and spread it out, it was redundant for four years. But it's not the same as making a pepper. No, it's not the same no. as making a pepper. How long would you ferment that? Uh, well, until it stops bubbling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 There's some, re when you, with your new field, that's a great place to try. Yeah. You could just yeah. pick it into a, a, a barrel like that. Yeah. And you can use brown sugar or molasses. Yeah. In it to sort of start the ferment. And would you use one weed at a time, shall we, or can you do well, more at one time? Let's say you you've can got do three. Three, yes, but it's better to if do one. you've got an endemic weed, one that's yeah, really taken yeah, over yeah. the whole field, like oftentimes you will say it's because you cultivated wet. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. you, there's all these different causes for it, not just deficiencies of minerals, but more yeah. or less they do quite often yeah. show a deficiency of minerals. Yeah. And and we can or see Or an excess maybe. Yeah. Or so an, excess. an excess. Exactly. Yeah, it could yeah, be yeah. an excess. Yeah. And so so if you observe it, then you create the remedy from it's like homeopathic. Yeah. 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 You, you know, and, and you, you only need it. a small amount of sugar for the fermenting. Well start. yeah. Some people say up to a third. Mm -hmm. Of the plant. Okay. Oh yeah. And of the plant volume, you mean? Yeah, of the plant yeah, volume yeah, yeah, by yeah, volume. Yeah. And you right. know, and then you that's stir it with a stick. Oh, that's good. And you cover it over. And as as one farmer's wife says, you put it as far away from the house as you can get. Because <laughs> he used to, John Priestley. Yeah. He used to ferment a lot of fish. Oh yes, I know fish. Yes. yes. And his wow. wife, when his wife said, yeah. "Yep, he has to yeah. change his clothes before coming in the house for many hours away." Yes, I can imagine. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But fantastic for, and he had. I have some wonderful photos of um, one of his big fermenting. He had a stainless steel because he was a dairy farmer mm -hmm. before. So he had all these stainless yeah. steel bats, and it was flat as the ferment. So he put in the compost, the vitamin and compost remedies. Actually, he did it radionically. Uh -huh. He put it into this vat. The next day, it had bubbles that high from fermentation. Yeah. Yeah, that was... It, it, went, that, it went into fermenting that fast. Just like past. that. Yes, Just from, exactly. the, from, the, yeah, yeah. from the biodynamic yeah, compost yeah, remedies. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, 
Shabri, the last thing I would like to talk to you about is um, my... Um, you really opened up our eyes that we need to look after uh, Mother Earth. And uh, if you expo expose the soil, that means it's losing energy and it's not able to build up something, and, uh, and especially not humans. So I did a very small experiment in my own garden. I left one block uh, bare in winter. And I had one field which I mulched with crop residue. And then I had one field where I put on some compost. And then the last one, I had a green manure crop. And the good news is Hugh was there when I was doing this experiment. So we were going into the field somewhere in January, I think, and we had a look at the bare soil. And I can't say it's dead, but nothing was happening there. Absolutely nothing. And all the weather, all the elements had a go on my soil. Yeah. So when it was raining or it was pouring, that piece of land was suffering. When it was dry and windy, I was losing my good bits. And we went to the mulch bit. Mm, that was a bit better. So if we lifted the mulch, you could see some activity. A few good fungi coming in mm -hmm. and some, uh, some biology, uh, some insects and soil insects and all. A few worms. The compost was uh, comparable to that. Uh, you could see some activity in there as well, not as much as I expected. So it was it was good compost, so it was a humified compost, but not much happening. And I still found it was fairly um, uh, susceptible to weather uh, 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 influences, and the, shocking in a positive way. Shocking to see the difference with the copper crop. That's what's going that to was that really opened up my uh, my uh, uh, view. Can I say view mm -hmm. on what's happening? So as long as you manage to keep a healthy living root in your soil, that carry on building biology. biology. It doesn't matter if it's winter or whatever. Yeah. That kept going. We opened up the green manure crop. And there were all kinds of life was there, active and wandering around. And you know, it was such great fun to do. And you could, you got the nice smell coming into mm. the topsoil. So that was all exudated going into the topsoil mm. and building humus and all kinds of nice creatures wandering around and worms. So do you recommend this for your farmers? Wow. And the good news is we used to have so many bare fields in winter. Yes. And all of my growers now, these days, if they see a bear field, they, ooh, i got to sow something. <laughs> <laughs> so we do, you know, all kinds of cover crops and marigolds and oats and everything. Oh, Hugh collects his own seed for, for cover crops. He told you about his sow and mow. That's what he calls it. He sows, he just field of grass. And he'll go and he'll just throw in mm. rye and yeah, yeah. clover oh, exactly. and radishes yes. and turnips and yeah. seeds it all. Yeah. Then he mows it down yeah. and then it sprouts up. All right. Yes. Yep. So um, the good news is not, Long many, mower. <laughs> not many growers, uh, well, still a few are very addicted to chemicals and they would love to sterilize their soil. 
That is now completely banned in Holland, so you cannot sterilize the soil anymore. And now they all are open to good cover crops that will uh, build biology. And what cover crops do you prefer? If they have nematode issues, they will go for uh, marigolds. You know marigolds? Yes, sure. And we call that Japanese oats. And those oh. two, if you combine them or if you let them follow up one another, you can have a good healthy soil within one season. Really? So suppose you've got. And what nematode. about recovering from their chemical addiction? What crops do they use to? Um, if I know there are too many residues. We use humates, humic acid, mm -hmm. and especially fulvic acid, mm -hmm. which for us is a very good detox. Yeah. And which helps us uh, get rid of the residues faster. And in combination with a good cover crop, that will help you uh, improve your soil a, a lot in a fairly short time. So that's what we do. And, uh, and the other interesting thing is that we used to plough everything in. And now the good growers, they sort of mow it and leave it for the winter. And then early spring, they just have their beds. Yep. And it'll be... Uh, It'll be digested enough for them to just plant in there. Yeah. And so they never plough anymore? Uh, uh, some still want to plough, they insist on ploughing. But the good ones, they, they, uh, they stop ploughing there. So, uh, and then we use the topsoil as it is, and that's where we plant it. And in Holland, you can have easterly winds up to June, which is very dry and... Uh, very, very cold, we can have night frost up to the beginning of June. Our findings are, if you have that weather and you've got an old cover crop, which is, which is still standing up a bit, you know, let's say five or ten centimeters, that is such a good shelter for new plants. So if you plant your strawberries, or even if you've sown something and it comes up, that, that stubble, is such a big help for these plants to get going and they're not so exposed and the wind is not really uh, um, uh, too harsh on them and they manage to to have a very good start so we can gain some up to five or seven days in growth by creating this wonderful microclimate yeah <laughs> <laughs> What's the size of most of your farms that you uh, The smallest one is one hectare, <laughs> and the biggest one I visit is up to 300 hectares, which for Dutch standards is That's very, very, very big. The average farm in Holland would be around 20, 25 hectares. Oh. So, yeah. And the one here in, in Scotland, how many hectares? Stewards, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think they're going... Uh, around 70 or 80 hectares. Strawberries. Uh, don't get me wrong on that, but I think that's about the strawberry acreage they do. Yeah. So, yeah. It's amazing. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you like strawberries? Um, I like... I, if, uh, shall I be honest with you? I like the strawberries in the time when they are meant to be there. Yes. So in May and June, yes. those berries are by far the best you can have. So uh, you can force them, you can use greenhouse or tunnels or whatever, and you can have them up to Christmas, 
but the best ones are in May and June when Mother Nature has them, uh, when they are meant to be there. When and what, sorry, sorry, Shibari, the, and what I find is nothing beats that quality at that time. Mm. So everything is... It's, it's perfect time. Yes, if you, would, if you look at this from Mother Nature, uh, early spring when the soil is still cold, the plant can take in the boron and the silica and some calcium. Then the soil warms up, going into May, and it, it starts to mineralize, and it releases potassium, and that is the time when they start fruiting. Yep. <laughs> so, yep. what I was trying to explain earlier on is with, with the shifting of the minerals and with the, with the, with the fertilizer, that is what Mother Nature does uh, as it's meant to be. Mm. So that's, that is the time when the natural strawberries would be there. You know well, here when, there's cropping until November, right? Yes, and in, in Holland you can have strawberries up to Christmas from the glass house. But mm. looking at the quality and especially the energy level for us human beings to benefit from such berries, that's a whole different story. No. And the taste. And the taste, yes. yes. <laughs> Best <laughs> yes. quality control. But uh, <laughs> looking at fruit fill and sweetness, nothing beats the main crop. Mm. The time when they're meant to be there. So, <laughs> yeah. Thank yeah. you very much for sharing your amazing advice with us <laughs> tonight here from near Perth, Scotland. <laughs>